This is day two of the 2015 Rocky Mountain Bible School. Our third class for the day is, will be led to us by our brother Richard Morgan from the Hamilton Book Road, Ontario Ecclesia. His topic for the week is Demons and the Superstitious Mind. And the title for today is The Biblical Demonology. Brother Richard. Good morning once again, brothers and sisters. All right, so as I said, we're going to be talking about two items this morning. First of all, an extension of what we were talking about yesterday, the superstition instinct. And I use that word instinct on purpose because what scientists have discovered is that superstition is instinctive behavior. We are naturally superstitious. And we're going to have a look, God willing, at how that superstition instinct actually feeds into why people started believing in demons and false gods in the first place. It's a natural thing for mankind to do, especially because of his ignorance. You remember that uh, verse in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at this actually later in the week, at, at how God winked at the ignorance of the nations for a while, but now commands every man to repent, whatever nation they come from. So for a long time, man was ignorant and based his, his religious understanding and his philosophy, his ideas, on his superstition instinct. And then we're going to have a look at the Old Testament, in particular, demonology that feeds into the New Testament demonology and see exactly what the Bible says demons are and what they're not. And how the Bible how God deals with people who believe in demons. And, and maybe that will help us to begin to understand how we can preach to people who have this deep-seated, superstitious belief in demons. So let me ask you, the, you a question. Do you ever do things or avoid doing things so not to tempt fate? You might not use those words in, in so many ways, but the exact words, but do you ever avoid doing something or do something, a ritual perhaps, so as not to tempt fate? For instance, do you ever ask yourself the question rationally, will it be more likely to rain if you leave your umbrella at home? Do you, do you, do you bring your umbrella with you just in case, as if your bringing or not bringing of the umbrella can cause it to rain or not rain? Will you jinx your favorite athlete by pointing out their run of success? Will you have bad luck by walking under a ladder? You know, my head gives me the rational answer to these questions. No, I don't believe that I can attempt fate. I don't believe that if I leave my umbrella at home, it's more likely to rain. My rational mind says, no, that, that's silly. It doesn't make any sense at all. And yet I get this this mixed message in my head because my superstition instinct, my irrational part of my brain says, well, I'd really regret it if I did leave my umbrella at home and it did rain. So I'll take my umbrella so as not to tempt fate. And, you know, we go through these things in our minds. Even we rational 21st century sophisticated human beings, we we do things or avoid things so as not to tempt fate. And uh, there was an article based on some research that uh, some psychologists did at one of the most rational institutions in the world, at Cornell University. Here, the most rational, logical, intelligent, sophisticated 21st century people in the world were put to the test whether they tempted fate and they did the umbrella test on them. And uh, they asked them a series of questions and so forth. And they found that these very intelligent, rational people failed the umbrella test. That they would take the umbrella with them just in case their leaving of the umbrella caused it to rain. Okay. Not, obviously, you bring your umbrella just in case it rains. That's different. But uh, these were rational people who failed the tempt fate umbrella test. And what psychologists have actually found 
is that there are very, this is a very simplified look at uh, the psychology of the human brain, but they've, they've found that there are two main parts of the human brain. One which is very fast moving and one which is re relatively slow. And the very fast moving part of our brain is where our superstition instinct comes from. It's the first thing that comes to mind. And the more rational side of our brain, the logical side of our brain, the deliberate processing of information and the decision making that we make based on things that make sense, that is relatively slow compared with our superstition instinct. And so that's how our mind thinks. And rationally, we know it's no more likely to rain if we don't take our umbrella, but our mind can't help reminding us how bad we'll feel if we do tempt fate. And so we have this struggle going on in all of our minds. This is natural to the way we think. So we are naturally superstitious. And the reason we're naturally superstitious is because by nature, we don't actually know what causes things to happen. The human brain in and of itself, without being taught information, doesn't know why it rains or doesn't rain. We aren't, we aren't born with that knowledge. And so without having learned why things happen, the irrational part of the human brain takes over and directs us. And also, because learning takes effort and time, it's more difficult than relying on this fast, instinctive behavior. And also, the irrational mind makes us feel better about ourselves. And we're going to investigate that as we go along. So let me ask you the, the following questions. Why do these things happen? Why do harvests come? Why do volcanoes erupt? Why do clouds drop rain? And all of us, I'm sure, have gone to school. We've learned about these things, and we can give a good... Uh, at least a basic scientific answer as to why these things happen. But think about thousands and thousands of years ago, and people without this knowledge, without this understanding, li living uh, ignorantly of why, why does the grass grow? Why do I get a harvest? Why does it rain? Why is that volcano erupting? And without scientific knowledge, that superstition instinct kicks in. And scientists have discovered that this really, really is an instinct. And so, again, coming back to these two parts of the human mind. So we ask the question, why do things happen? There's always a rational answer and an irrational answer. And the thing is, the irrational answer always rewards us much better than the rational answer. The rational answer comes from hard work, using the scientific method, gaining knowledge, being rational, things which are provable, things which are emotionally neutral. So it's, it's difficult for us to come up with those answers. It's far easier to come up with irrational answers to these why questions. Using pseudoscience, astrology, blind faith, irrational ideas, being highly emotional about things, that's what's natural to us and we get immediate satisfaction, reward from thinking in that irrational way. Of course, this is how we understand human nature. This is how the Bible describes human nature. In the Garden of Eden, we had the serpent and the fast reasoning contrasting with the slow processing that would have to take place in the mind of Eve. Very quickly, she saw the food that was good and desire to make one wise, and then the slow, rational part of our mind that said, do not eat of it lest you die, was slower, was more difficult to take in, and of course, her instinctive behavior kicked in. So that's, that's what human nature is like. That, that is what we are, that's what we're made up of. And so this becomes more important for us, I believe, than the silliness of whether we walk under a ladder or, or bring an, um, an umbrella with us. Here's uh, how another scientist pictured the way that we think. And uh, this is a little bit more complicated, but basically what I want to uh, 
focus on this central part here, the feel-okay system. We tend to think in ways that make us feel okay about ourselves. This was actually put together by someone who was studying both superstition and addictions, and he found that they're actually related to each other. And if you think about addictions, they're things that you do over and over and over again. It's instinctive behavior. It becomes instinctive behavior, a lot like superstition. You think, think of things like um, doing things by rote, things that you do. Um, what's the, the, the word? Um, when you, you keep on having to do the same ritual. Repet yes. OCD, yeah, yeah. I should know this. This is kind of in our family a little bit. So, OCD, it's addictive behavior, and it can become very superstitious behavior, that I've got to do these rituals in order to uh, avoid something or in order to bring some sort of uh, positive outcome in my life. So we can see that addictive behavior and superstitious behavior are very, very much um, aligned, and this scientist discovered this. And what he discovered is that we have this central part of our, our thinking, uh, all based on our instincts and stimuli and, and so forth, and it's called this feel-okay system. We tend to make decisions based on what feels okay to us, not, what on, not, what on, not on what is right, but what on feels right. Okay? And if we're honest with ourselves, Left to ourselves, we tend to think in that way. We tend to make decisions on what feels right rather than what is right. And because the, the superstitious, addictive behavior is natural to us, it makes us feel right about good about ourselves. We, we feel comfortable with this behavior and with this thinking. And it very often overrides the more difficult, slow, deliberate processing our brains need to make, to make rational decisions. So what has all this got to do with demons and idolatry? Well, we would go back thousands of years. The, our pagan or our, our heathen man on the left there, our ignorant man who doesn't have the scientific knowledge, the know-how to understand, scratches his head and says, why do these things happen? The superstitious instinct takes hold of him and he assumes that because he performs a rain dance that causes it to rain. And uh, the classic example of pagan behavior, of course, is with the volcano. We've got to appease the wrath of the volcano god by throwing a pure virgin down the mouth of the volcano. And these pagan rituals came about because they're natural, because Without the scientific answers, without that knowledge, people come up with things that just make them feel right about themselves, that somehow they have the power. Something, something like what uh, Nathan was talking about in his class, that we tend to want to take the power away from God, the Creator, and ascribe it to ourselves, that somehow by performing our rituals that we have power over these things. So that comes right into the 21st century, that somehow we have power to make it rain or not rain by leaving our umbrella or taking it with us. So this is a very natural thing and leads right into uh, paganism, but also to the 21st century. This is still behavior that we see in the world today, that somehow we think that there are these invisible forces and these rituals that we perform that help us get the gold medal. But by putting on our odd socks or by doing the sign of the cross, that somehow that's going to help us to uh, succeed in life. And people still perform their pagan religious rites, which are simply based on this superstition instinct. So an athlete goes into the final of the 100 meters and his rational mind might say to him, I don't have to perform my pre-race ritual. It doesn't make any difference at all. I'm an athlete. I'm strong. I'm prepared. I've trained. All I've got to do is run. But just in case, I'll do the sign of the cross. Have I got my odd socks on? Yes, that's good. And 
people do it anyway, because people think that they, um, by doing these things, that they make them feel better about themselves, and they think that there is some connection between their rituals and outcomes. So let's now do a, a survey of um, some of the Old Testament passages that actually deal with demons. And do you think to yourself in the Old Testament, well, there's not really much that the Old Testament says about demons. In fact, the word demon itself, strictly speaking, in, the, in our Hebrew Bibles, doesn't even exist. In the King James, we get the word devils four times in the Old Testament. And uh, in modern translations, it's often translated as, a de as demons, but it's not really the same as the, the Greek word that we find in the New Testament. So strictly speaking, demons don't really exist in the Old Testament until we realize that what demons were in the pagan world was simply the small gods. We talked yesterday about there being two types of gods in the pagan world. The big gods, like, you know, the, the Zeus and the Apollo of the world, and then the, the smaller gods. And that's what demons were to the pagan mind. They were these small gods that were in charge of every little thing in life that they, they couldn't explain by their knowledge of science and so on. So they said, well, some sort of demon causes this thing to happen. Now, let's put up a, a slide here of some of the passages that mention demons. And what I've got here is a mix of quotations from the King James, which you'll recognize, and some from the Septuagint. Bearing in mind that the Septuagint is simply a translation, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, but it does give us some insight into how the Jews, some of the Jews, when they translated the Hebrew Bible, how they view demons. So, what you'll notice as you look through these passages is that demons are very often connected with religion. So, you've got, uh, don't sacrifice unto devils, okay? translated in some modern versions as demons. Here again, we've got sacrificing unto demons. I've got to get out, I can't see this properly. Um, Again, the word, the word demons. You'll notice the, the Hebrew here, though, is it's different words. This word shed, this word satyr. It's not strictly a word that means a demon. Um, and then we get things like in the Septuagint of Psalm 91, nor of mischance and the demon of noonday. Now, have a look, read of Psalm 91. Let's just maybe go to that passage. It's kind of interesting. Psalm 91 was actually quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ during his wilderness temptations, or at least quoted by the tempter. The angel shall give charge over you. And it's a, a psalm of comfort when you feel danger around you. So obviously Jesus felt danger in the wilderness. He was there in a, a wild place. That it says in Mark's record that wild beasts were with him. And especially at night, it would have been a scary place. He would have heard the odd howl. Um, he would have heard the screech of an owl. He would have heard the scuttering of an animal. And it would have been a scary place. And really what Psalm 91 is, is a psalm of comfort for things that go bump in the night. Have you ever lay awake at night and you hear some noise in the house and you get the, the heebie-jeebies? What was that? You know? It's probably just the water going through the pipes or the, you know, the, the, the general creaking of the house, but your mind plays tricks on you and you imagine things. Okay? Well, that's what Psalm 91 is about. It's about what goes through our minds, our imaginations. And uh, when the Hebrews in the at the end of the, um, or during the Maccabean era, translated the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures into the Septuagint, they chose to use the word demon here. It's kind of interesting. Look at what it says here in, uh, in verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. 
He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. It's poetic language, but it, it, it describes people who hear things, see shadows, that they can't explain and their imagination takes over, their fear takes over, the terror by night, the arrow that flies by day. And it's interesting that they translated this word here as the demon of noonday. And in fact, when you look at the Hebrew, several of the Hebrew words here in Psalm 91 are words that are used in other cultures as names of demons. So where you get in, in verse 6, the destruction, the Hebrew word translated destruction there, has been borrowed in the Hebrew from another language where it's used as the name of a demon. Kind of interesting. We won't go into that in any more detail, but that's what the mind does. This is what the superstition instinct does when it sees shadows, when it hears noises, our irrational mind takes over. Instead of saying that's just the creaking of the house, oh, what was that? And you get the shivers. That's how the human mind works. Let's have a look at uh, another couple here. Um, Psalm 96. This is a really interesting one. That all the gods of the nations are demons. Okay. So at least some in the time when the Septuagint were written, some understood that a demon was equated with a god. So we can see there how people at least understood what demons were. Uh, again, the idea of sacrificing unto demons. So demons are connected with religious rites. Let's actually look that one up, Psalm 106. Psalm 106, and uh, we'll look at the, the whole section here from verse 34. It says, it's talking here about the history of the children of Israel and some of their failings. It says in verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. So here are the rational-minded Jewish people given the rational law of God by, by Yahweh, but then mixing with the nations and lear learning what they do. And so in verse 36, they served their idols, their nothings, as, as Nathan showed, which became a snare to them because it's easier to serve idols than the rational creator of the universe. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. So here again, it equates demons. In verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. And then in this parallel verse, in verse 38, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So the, we get the connection there between demons and idols. And then this last one is, is very interesting. In uh, Isaiah 65, they were sacrificed in the gardens to burn incense on their towers to demons, which have no existence. Okay. So at least a subset of Jewish understanding during that time was that demons simply are nothing. They're like the gods of the nations. They don't exist. Unfortunately, as time went on during that period, between the Old and New Testaments, the Jews did learn the ways of the nations and they incorporated in their understanding the idea of the existence of demons, at least a subset of the Jews. And we find that in New Testament times where there was a very strong belief in demons in Jewish culture, at least part of Jewish culture. And we'll develop that, God willing, later on in the week. So we get this connection then between demons and gods or idols. 
With that in mind, I want us to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. And this is really a key chapter when dealing with the, the topic of demons. This is actually one of the chapters which the Apostle Paul used in his teaching on demons, both in his epistle to the Corinthians, which we'll look at in a moment, and his speech in Athens, which we're going to look at, I think, on Thursday. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is one of the verses I think we've got up there, the second one here, let's have a look at this in a little bit of detail. So verse 16 and 17, first of all, speaking about God's people who had learned the ways of the nations, as we read in Psalm 106. Verse 16 says, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. And each time we have the word gods here is the word Elohim, the normal word for gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods that were, again, as Brother Nate said, that were nothings, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. So they were learning the ways of the nations, and it became part of their religion. They started sacrificing to these demons because they were gods. This is a good passage, actually, to take people to today who believe in demons, especially in the Christian world, the idea in the Christian world about demons is that there are always these evil minions of the devil. And yet, according to the Bible, what demons were, were actually gods that people worshipped. And there were good demons, and there were bad demons. So, as we've read there in verse uh, 16, this actually stirs God to jealousy. God, as he proclaimed to Moses on the mountain, is a jealous God. Not because he has that human characteristic as we understand jealousy, but because it's bad for us to divert our attention away from the sovereign ruler of the universe and ascribe power to other things. That's what idolatry really is. It's ascribing power to things apart from the one true God, and God is jealous for our attention. So this stirs God to jealousy, and that's repeated in verse 21. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And what God is going to do now is he's going to deal with their belief in demons. We're going to see in a moment how useful this can be, at least to begin to see how useful this can be in our preaching to others. But first of all, we'll come back to Deuteronomy in a moment, so keep a marker in there, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As the Apostle Paul actually quotes from this chapter, and he's talking here about food offered to idols, which we're going to cover in our final class on, on Friday. So we'll look at this passage again then, but for now, just have a look at this connection that the Apostle Paul makes between demons and gods or idols. And he makes the parallel here. So in uh, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? And the answer to his rhetorical question is no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And that phrase there in verse 20, they offer to demons and not to God. If you look in your margin, if you have a good marginal reference, it will take you right to Deuteronomy um, I'll just check whether my margin has it. Uh, verse 20, Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. It's a direct quotation. They offered to demons and not to God. So Paul is picking up on that context of Deuteronomy chapter 32, and he's identifying idols with 
demons. He's making the parallel there. An idol is nothing. No, the pagans sacrifice to demons. It's, it's just nothing. Then he says in verse 22, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And again, you can see he's picking up there on Deuteronomy chapter 32. This um, adoration that the people had to other things apart from God provoked God to jealousy. So Paul is concerned with food offered to idols. He does say at the end of verse 20, I do not want you to, to be participants with demons. So he is concerned with it. And we're going to develop the, the balance on that, God willing, on uh, on Friday. But I just wanted to show that Paul makes the, 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 the connection there between demons and idols. So if you come back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, basically what a, a demon is, again, is one of these small gods. So what the pagans said about demons are things like that they would summer thunder and lightning. Why, why does thunder and lightning occur? Well, today in our 21st century understanding, we know exactly why thunder and lightning occur. Well, back then, they had no clue. Until it was studied, what explanation was there? There must be some sort of demon up in the sky. What about disease? Where does disease come from? Must be some sort of demon. Natural disasters, good luck. And so it goes on and on and on and on. The only explanation people had before things were learned, before they came out of that ignorance and understood that there is one supreme God who is sovereign over all creation and has created all things that work in a very scientific and uh, rational way, before they learned that, they would ascribe these things to their demons taking away that power from the Creator. So what does God say back in Deuteronomy chapter 32 in answer to this? Well, have a look at verse 36. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 36. And what God says here is that, no, it's not this demon and that demon and the other demon who does these things. There is one source of all of these phenomena, and it is Yahweh. So verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. You trust in these gods, these demons, all right, put it to the test. See if they will actually protect you. And over time, people would learn that, no, there is no power in these nothings. Verse 39 then, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God does all of these things. God is the source of thunder and lightning, disease, disasters, whether we have success in life. God is sovereign over all things. And we know this is one of the grand themes, the unity of God, all the way through Scripture. And some of those magnificent passages in the prophet of Isaiah, for instance, there is one God, there is none else. And what belief in demons is, is to take away that power from God. And it's to believe in a multiplicity of gods instead of one. And again, this is another good way, I think, to, to talk to people when we're out preaching, we come into contact with people who believe in demons. It's to emphasize the sovereignty, the unity of God. Go to passages like in Isaiah, chapters 45, 46, 47, there's magnificent passages where the unity of God is, is demonstrated that there is none like unto him. And that belief in demons actually is a form of idolatry. 
Well, let's develop this a little bit further. If you go back to verse 15, it says that Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him. That's what their sacrificing to demons effectively did. They forsook God. They said that Yahweh doesn't bring thunder and lightning. Instead, there's some other God who does these things. Yahweh doesn't bring disease. There's some demon that brings disease. So they're, they're demoting the Creator down to uh, a bit part player in their lives. And in effect, they are forsaking Him. So what does God do then? Apart from emphasizing His unity, His sovereignty... How does God deal with these people who believe in demons? Well, it's really interesting what he does. Look at verses 22 down to 25. God is going to bring judgments upon them. Verse 22 says, A fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. Now, as we read through this list of what God is going to do, the interesting thing about this list is that what God is going to demonstrate is that He is in charge of all the things that they were ascribing to their demons. So they said, verse 23, that there is a disaster demon. Yahweh says, no, I'm in charge of disasters and I will heap those disasters upon you. I will spend my arrows on them. Verse 24, they believed in a, a demon that caused hunger. No, I'm in charge of those things. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague. There was a plague demon. But Yahweh says, no, I'm in charge of plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawled in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoor terror for young men and women alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. And so it goes on that God is demonstrating that he is sovereign. He is in charge of the thunder and the lightning and the disease and, and all these things that the nation said were caused by this God and that God and the other God. And what's even more interesting about this is just like in that psalm we looked at earlier, Psalm 91, the psalm about God protecting those who, who are afraid of things that go bump in the night. And I made mention of some of the Hebrew terms there are actually the names of demons in, uh, according to other nations. Well, the same phenomenon is true here. And I just want to give you one example as we, we draw our thoughts to a close here. In verse 24, um, where it says they shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague. I think it says burning heat in the, the King James Version. The word translated burning heat is uh, the word reshef. So, here I've got the King James Version up here. They should be burnt with hunger and devoured with burning heat. That is this Hebrew word reshef. Okay. And it simply means, it's the Hebrew word for burning heat or maybe a lightning bolt, or that sort of thing. That's the, that's the sense of the Hebrew. That's what it means. That's why the translators translated it, burning heat. You might think, Brother Richard, why are you telling us this? Well, what's interesting about that word reshef is that while it is a common, normal, everyday Hebrew word for a naturally occur occurring phenomenon created by the sovereign creator of all things, what we find is that, that word reshef has actually come into the Hebrew language from a pagan language. And uh, you can do a lot of research on this guy. His name is Reshef. This is how the, the nations around Israel would have understood who Reshef was. They thought Reshef was a demon. This is, um, for instance, from Wikipedia, but you can go to the other sources, uh, sorry, the Encyclopedia Britannica. There he is, there's Reshef. Okay. This is how the pagans understood what uh, 
things like plague and lightning bolts and, and so on were, were caused by. So in Hebrew, the burner, hence translated um, burning heat. And so it goes on about how this was a god of plague and of the underworld and, and so forth. And this is some of the ideas of what this Reshef character did. So what Deuteronomy chapter 32 is telling us is that Reshef doesn't exist. It's demythologizing belief in demons. You want to know what Reshef is? It's just a lightning bolt. That's what Deuteronomy 32 verse 24 is saying. And I am in charge of it. There's not some other God that causes these things to happen. I, Yahweh, do all these things. Again, verse 39. I kill. I make alive. I wound. I heal. And what we're going to do, God willing, um, and extend on this idea tomorrow, is that this is the way that God deals with belief in demons. He didn't sit down and give them a a rational first principle talk on what demons are. What Yahweh does in Deuteronomy 32 is simply demonstrate that he has the power. And Reshef is powerless. You want to believe in Reshef? That's up to you. But I'll show you I am in charge of Reshef. And I am going to bring down the lightning bolt. And I'm going to judge you who believe that that lightning bolt is caused by someone other than me. We're going to look at that in more detail, God willing, tomorrow when we look at the gods of Egypt and with the, the healings of the demoniacs in the New Testament. And I believe that that is the only way to deal with the superstitious mind and belief in demons is to demonstrate that there is one God, sovereign over all things, who is way more powerful than all other gods.